0: Thanks for joining us uh, this morning for this panel on the future of school finance. Um, My name is Erica Greeter. I'm the Southwest correspondent for The Economist. Sorry. How's this? Oh, better. There we go. Okay. My name is Erica Greeter. I'm the Southwest correspondent for The Economist. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm happy to welcome you to this panel on the future of school finance and uh, evergreen issue in the state and one that we will uh, look forward to solving finally this morning. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we have about an hour for the panel. We're getting started about five minutes late. We're going to end on time because you have to get back um, across campus in some cases for the next panels. So just to do some housekeeping quickly, uh, we'll have about 40 (coughs) minutes of moderated discussion, 15 to 20 minutes for Q&A. there's mics on each side, so you can go up to those um, after about 40 minutes of moderated discussion. Uh, we have here four panelists who are each involved with one of the lawsuits that the state is going to hear next month. So I thought that to get us started, I would ask each of them to explain their lawsuit and what their, what their group is working for, um, and that'll give us kind of the lay of the land. I'll introduce everyone individually. And so we'll start uh, with David Thompson. Also, we have three Davids on the panel, so <laughs> that's going to make this even more confusing than it already was, but we'll do our best um, to keep everyone straight. Uh, Mr. Thompson is a partner at Thompson and Horton based in Houston. He has been involved in school finance issues in Texas for some 30 years, starting with Edward One. Uh, he is currently representing the group of 80 public school districts, more than 80, I guess. Uh, that are aggregated under the Fort Bend ISD lawsuit. So, Mr. Thompson, I'll ask you to give us the live.
1: Thanks. Well, very good, and good morning. Thanks, Erica, and thanks to the Tribune, and I'd like to say to my fellow panelists, great to see you again. We've all known each other for many years, and I'm appreciative to be with you this morning. Um, I, I would like to start and frame our conversation this morning with... Uh, A provision of the Texas Constitution that has not changed in 136 years. Article 7, Section 1. And Article 7 deals with all of education. Public education, community and junior colleges, higher education. The very first words are these. A general diffusion of knowledge being essential to the preservation of the liberties and rights of the people, comma, it shall be the duty of the legislature of the state to establish and make suitable provision for an efficient system of public-free schools. And frankly, what most school finance lawsuits are about are are how we interpret and actually operationalize some of the key phrases in in that constitutional provision. Our group of plaintiffs, uh, roughly 83 school districts, uh, collectively educate nearly 1.9 million children. It's the largest group there's ever been in the history of school finance litigation in Texas. By the way, about two-thirds of the districts representing about three-fourths of the students are involved in this lawsuit. One of the words that the Constitution <laughs> focuses on is a general diffusion of knowledge. That's why we have schools in the first place. And so part of the discussion is gonna be, what what is that? And and that is, in broad terms, the policy standards that our state has set, the the curriculum expectations, the accountability and accreditation expectations that we have for schools and students. Uh, And the legislature has a lot of discretion from a policy standpoint to decide how high that bar must be. But once we set that, think about the structure of the Constitution, the duties kick in we have to establish and suitably provide for an efficient system of public free schools. A lot of litigation over the word efficient. Efficient certainly means non-wasteful. And I'm gonna assume Representative Grusendorf, you will have a few words to say about that. Um, Efficient also means some degree of equity, some degree of fairness. This is a state duty that the state owes to the whole state to all communities. So some degree of equity uh, is, is part of being efficient. Um, part of being efficient also has a concept of adequacy. Not just kind of blue sky, how much do you think is enough, but tied back to our standards. In other words, once we set the standards, to have a funding system that actually gives schools and kids a reasonable opportunity to get to the standards. An efficient system has to be rational and intelligible. It has to make sense. I suspect our current system doesn't really make sense. In addition, another provision of our Constitution, Article 8, Section 1E, prohibits the state from establishing a state property tax. And our Supreme Court has very consistently, for many years, said the exact same thing that tamar and i say to our kids don't do indirectly what you're prohibited from doing directly pretty commonsensical and what our supreme court has said is that if the state gets so dependent on local property taxes for the primary support of the system that for all practical purposes the state is controlling the local rate then the Supreme Court said, we're going to call it what it is. We're going to call it a state property tax. And in fact, that was why the system was found unconstitutional in 2005. So our group of plaintiffs, a very broad group representing all parts of the state, um, we want a system that is tied to high standards. We support high standards as a state. We need high standards. We need a funding system that adequately and equitably allows schools and kids to meet those standards and that still leaves meaningful discretion for local communities to make decisions that are important to them.
0: Great. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Thompson. We'll turn next to our second David, David Hinojosa, who is the Southwest Regional Council for MALDEF, which is the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Uh, Mr. Hinosa is relatively uh, new, having joined MALDEF in 2003, but MALDEF has been involved in Texas school finance since 1968, so there's a lot of institutional history behind the lawsuit they have, which he will tell us about.
2: Sure, and I'll try and break it down a little more succinctly about what our claims are. We represent five of the poorest school districts in the state of Texas, uh, and those districts are Edgewood... ISD in San Antonio, a number of districts in the Valley, including McAllen and Harlingen. We represent parents and children in the panhandle of Texas. We represent parents and children in Pasadena because at bottom in these lawsuits is the students' right and opportunity to acquire a general diffusion of knowledge. Can they achieve the standards that the state has put in place? The state has anteed up, Uh, they've raised the standards on everyone. Now we're asking them to show their cards, because you just can't, just as one of our superintendents in Colorado had mentioned, uh, you can accept these standards, you can try to make these standards, but you just can't make it happen by wishing it so to happen. It's just not going to happen that way, because virtually everything costs money. Professional development. So when you change standards, you change the curriculum. Teachers have to uh, adjust their past teaching ways. Any of you out there with uh, children in the public schools who were taking the tax and now took the STAR, you might know firsthand about how the standards have changed. And we're not fighting against those standards. We're not saying we'll lower the standards for kids. That's not what our lawsuit is about. What we're asking for is, one, equity in funding. We have today a a school finance system that has gotten worse than it's been since 1993. We have where all the kids are held to the same standards across the state. There's no asterisk next to your name if you're low income, and you won't have to pass the 15 high school end-of-course exams. Went from four under tax. Which were very low standards matter of fact we've discovered in this case that if you have the old met standard under tax that's lower than the guessing standard under star that's how incredibly more difficult this is now the state's going to fudge on where they draw that line we know that they're going to lower that line so it looks like students aren't doing as bad as they really are but At the core of our lawsuit is fairness. It's fairness for these students who continue to not operate on a level playing field. If you hold all children to the same standards, then they should be provided equal funding as other students. That's not communism. That's fairness. And whatever the local school districts decide to do with that, their local communities can hold them accountable for that. But when you have some school districts on uh, the old Alamo Heights and Edgewood comparison in San Antonio, less than 10 miles apart, you have Edgewood having access to $1,000 less per child while its taxpayers are taxing at the maximum rate, but Alamo Heights is taxing it about 13 cents less. How is that fair where the kids in Alamo Heights are held to the same standards as the kids in Edgewood? When you talk about opportunities for extracurricular activities, you talk about opportunities for advanced placement uh, courses and access to those programs to help prepare them. High quality pre-K, we can't just continue with the system of pre-K that we have today. It has to be uh, much more substantial for these kids to have an opportunity, but yet, we have a funding system that just doesn't really care. And uh, so where are these kids gonna end up? Because even after eight years of testing under tax, low income and English language learner children are still suffering. And that's why we have our equity claim comparing wealthy districts to poor districts where we're asking the state to reasonably raise the floor. We don't wanna level down any children, but we definitely wanna raise the floor and cut that equity gap. But we also, our adequacy case is much more focused than any of the other parties because uh, our adequacy case focus, focuses on the funding for English language learner and low income students. These are the students. Your average Joe, your average affluent child, especially in a wealthy district, is not doing too bad in Texas. But your low income children, your English language learner children, they are the ones who are fighting. They are the ones at the bottom of these incredible and despicable uh, achievement gaps that we have today. And so we focus our uh, adequacy case arguing that the funding for these children has no relationship to what it actually costs to help bring them up because the state's admitted and everybody admits that these children can achieve on par with non-low income and non-English language learner students, but they need certain opportunities and they even need Much greater, much more in depth opportunities today than they did yesterday because the standards have been raised. So that's where our uh, case is centered on. I'm not saying necessarily that, that any other case is a lot less meritorious, but I will say that at the end of the day, our lawsuit is about fairness for the most vulnerable children, the children who don't have a voice in the legislature. And so we've turn to the courts to assert their rights and uh, make the state of Texas own up to its duties under the Constitution.
0: Thank you. Um, Our third panelist is David Dunn. Uh, David is the executive director of the Texas Charter Schools Association and has been since it was created in 2008. So he'll have a slightly different take on this. Uh, David's background is also in uh, education policy and education finance. Uh, he worked in Austin for a number of years at the Legislative Budget Board and for the Comptroller, and then worked in D.C. for the people who do education policy there. David, can you tell us about...
3: Sure. Thanks, Erica. We like to think we're the breath of fresh air this year in the, in the lawsuit. The first time that uh, school <coughs> finance has ever been looked at from the perspective of charter schools, at least through the, through the eyes of the court. Um, Charter schools were created in Texas in 1995. Since that time, we've we've grown rapidly. There are now over 500 charter school campuses across the state educating more than 130,000 kids. And um, we agree with with, uh, the cases that are made by the other two Davids on the panel to the extent that the school finance system is not suitably providing for the education of uh, students in those school districts. It's even less suitably providing for the students in uh, charter schools because the legislature provides less dollars per student for kids who are attending charter schools. Um, but our, our case is really uh, focused, our, our unique aspect of the case is really focused on a couple of, um, of what we view to be pretty simple points. And that is, the Supreme Court over the course of the decades um, that they've been, been looking at school finance has clearly established that the general diffusion of knowledge, in order to suitably provide for the general uh, diffusion of knowledge, the instructional aspect, the curriculum, teachers, that sort of thing is critical. But just as critical are the buildings and the facilities that are, uh, where that education occurs. The school districts have access to a local tax base, generate billions of dollars a year in INS uh, taxes to support and provide for those buildings. The state actually supplements um, for those school districts to, to get at equity. I know we, we can argue about whether they've achieved equity, but to at least attempt to get at equity, provide state dollars for um, facilities for school districts. They give zero to charter schools. In our view, nothing can be more clear, nothing, nothing, well, nothing can be more clear than zero compared to, to something. And so, our, our, in our opinion, since the, school, the Supreme Court has clearly stipulated that um, facilities are an integral part of a suitable school finance system, zero for charter schools violates that efficiency clause. And that's really. The, the nut of, um, of our uh, primary argument. Though we are also arguing that um, there is, the legislature has, in establishing charter schools, um, has, has established a cap on the number of charter schools that, um, ca- that can be authorized. Currently there is uh, a cap of 215. In our view, that arbitrary cap also violates the Efficiency Clause of the Constitution. We believe charter schools are demonstrably the most efficient schools in the public schools in the state of Texas. In fact, Controller Coombs in her report that came out just this, past, um, just this past week showed that nearly 30% of the most efficient schools in the state of Texas are public charter schools, even though charter schools are only educating about 4% of the kids. So clearly, well, we believe charter schools are among the most efficient schools in the in the state. And the fact that there is an arbitrary cap provided by the legislature on the most efficient schools in the state clearly violates the efficiency clause.
0: Okay, great. And then following up on the efficiency angle, we'll turn to Kent Grusendorf, who is the Executive Director of Texans for Real Efficiency and Equity in Education, which is a newish group and one of the other lawsuits. Uh, Mr. Grusendorf was in the legislature for uh, 20 years, from 87 to 2007. Oversaw a lot of these, uh, a, a lot of these discussions uh, in that capacity, including two terms as the head of the Public Education Committee for the House. Mr. Grusendorf, can you tell us about? It?
4: Thank you, Erica. It's good to be on this panel with three Davids. I'm outnumbered, but uh, I want to. We have a totally different perspective on this lawsuit, and I, I want to go back to. David Thompson very accurately quoted Article 7, Section 1 of the Texas Constitution. And we we talked about efficiency and general diffusion of knowledge and adequacy and the various aspects of that. But I want to come back to that constitutional requirement and focus on the purpose of Article 7, Section 1. The purpose of that article in the Constitution in establishing a system of public free schools was the preservation of the liberties and the rights of the people and a lot of times we got we get down into the weeds and the detail on funding of schools and we really forget that the fundamental purpose of that section of the Constitution is the preservation of the liberties and the rights of the people. And so I I want to focus a little bit on that and then talk to you a little bit about our lawsuit. Our lawsuit focuses not on the amount of money, more money, or how the money is, is allocated, David. Our lawsuit focuses on efficiency. And the Texas Supreme Court, since the very first Edgewood decision in 1989, said that efficient requires that the system be productive of results. With little waste. So our lawsuit focuses totally on that, and we don't take a position on whether or not we need more money in the lawsuit. We spend about 60 billion dollars in public education in the state of Texas today. Our, we've got sort of a novel idea. You know, why don't we first make sure the taxpayers are getting their money's worth for that money that we're spending. We're spending a lot of money, so let's focus first on whether that money has been spent efficiently to educate kids in the state of Texas. We don't really, like I said, take a position on adequacy or equity for school districts. Our focus is instead equity equity, and adequacy for students as opposed to school districts. We're we're going to present evidence in this trial that shows a lot of this inefficiency. One of the things that David Hinojosa talked about is unacceptable achievement gap. Fifty percent of our college freshmen have to take remedial courses. Is that an efficient system that produces also the high dropout rates? Is it an efficient system when we have as many dropouts as we have in the state of Texas? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to also talk about, you know, Oh, undue state control of the system. How much control the state imposes on local districts and prohibits local districts from making rational decisions in the allocation of their resources? And one of the examples we're going to focus on is Chapter 21, which is the labor laws in the state of Texas. Many of those labor laws just don't make sense. They force districts to spend a lot of money in ways that are inefficient. We're in it also, we, we align with uh, David Dunn's lawsuit on the charter scout. The arbitrary decision to limit charters, an efficient system of public free schools, to artificially and arbitrarily limit that the number of those charters to 215 was just a number the legislature pulled out of the air. And unfortunately, it was on one of my bills, but that's another <laughs> issue. But... It doesn't make any sense when you have, as David said, 100,000 kids in the state of Texas on waiting list to get into charter schools because those kids and those parents feel like that system would be better for them. So supply does not meet the needs of the demand. That's an inefficient system. How can any rational human being defend that limit on charters? Additionally, and Erica and I'll move on, we're going to make a broader argument that no system can be efficient which lacks competitive forces and supply-side change.
0: Okay, great. Well, I guess um, everyone agrees there's some problem here, but beyond that, I feel like there's some differences of opinions amongst the four of you and the other two uh, groups that are suing. Maybe the issue is that everyone's working with slightly different variations on what it means to be equitable, adequate, or efficient. Um, maybe the differences in how these are being prioritized. Um, do any of you want to respond to anything from each other? I mean, are there aspects in which these lawsuits contradict the goals of each other? Or
2: Sure, I'll, uh, I'll take a stab at that. Uh, and, and, you know, if I sound a little angry... Today, it's not because of the 60-plus hours that I've been working week in, week out for the last few months. It's the, uh, the willingness by a group that calls itself Texans for real efficiency and equity in the educational system, but yet their lawsuit has nothing to do with equity when it comes to equal educational opportunities for children. At the end of the day, what this lawsuit really is, is about, just like what uh, Kent said, rewriting the education code so that it serves their own special interests more. They don't want teachers to have the rights to a contract. They don't want teachers to have uh, the right to due process. There's no evidence that bad teachers aren't being fired. But they'll say that the way that you can fire the bad teachers is by getting rid of their due process rights. Don't get me wrong, we do want to get rid of bad teachers, and bad teachers are being getting rid of as we speak. But exactly who is a bad teacher? Is it because 40% of their kids only met the minimum standard on the tax or the star test this year? Oh, but last year they had 70% of the kids hit. And, you know, this type of... uh, lawsuit, it sounds maybe nice, sounds a little different, it sounds a little sexy, but at the end of the day, it really ignores the fairness for the students, the students who are the most vulnerable children in this state. With respect to charters, we don't have necessarily an issue with charters, but I will tell you that their own experts when it comes to the research on charters, have showed that they are no more successful nor no less successful than public schools. They have a great campaign out there that's going to tell you differently, but at the end of the day, they're no better or no worse. There are great, outstanding charters, and if you look at their bank, they have great funding uh, behind that. And then there are very poor-performing charters, just as there are Poor performing public schools. So you know, that, at the end of the day, neither one of those lawsuits really presents the issue. You want to lift the charter, the, the cap on charters. Let's get rid of the bad charters as they sit right now. That'll free up room at the cap, and the, and the cap's not even necessarily capped out because a lot of the school districts, if you know, for instance, I think it's a Kip and yes. They can continue to establish. You only need one charter, and you can continue to create schools all across the state. So it just distracts the court's attention at the real fairness issues that are at the bottom of these cases.
1: Erica, Several people I, are going to want to respond to that. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, Erica, let me, let me make That's a right. couple of quick uh, observations, and, and I'm, I'm going to focus on a couple of the legal positions one thing that i think is clear is that we may have some some differences on the issues every one of our groups believes the current system is unconstitutional so just for what that's worth Um, with regard to the charter schools argument david's 100 percent correct uh, that the supreme court opinions have very clearly said uh, that facilities are part of uh, the the suitable provision for, for a school system. And, and I think there's a clear legal argument there. I'm personally more inclined to think the cap on charters is more of a policy issue than a legal issue. We'll see how the court addresses that. Uh, but with regard to facilities, I, I think the law is pretty, pretty clear on that. Um, Kent, with regard to the efficiency uh, issues, you know, I remember, and I know you do too, Uh, The best studies we've ever had of the efficiency of school districts in Texas, and I'm not talking about somebody sitting in Austin uh, analyzing two year old data, but I'm talking about for well over a decade, comptrollers, both Republican and Democrat, did intensive on the ground studies of the efficiency of school districts all over the state. And just as an example, Houston ISD had one, took five months, cost nearly a million dollars, had over 50 investigators involved from the state, uh, and they found between one and 2% of the total funds that were being spent that might possibly be redirected and used in a slightly more efficient manner. So the only actual studies that have ever been done of the efficiency of school districts uh, pretty consistently have found that about one, maybe one and a half percent uh, of the existing funds could could be redirected, and those are the state's own very detailed uh, analyses. Uh, Kent, with regard to the structure of the system, one issue your group hasn't focused on, I'm curious why, is when the Supreme Court has spoken in every opinion back to Edgewood One about the structure of the system being inefficient, they haven't talked about teacher contracts. They haven't talked about class size. What they've talked about, in every opinion, are the boundaries of school districts. Now, that's sort of a third rail, politically, and I'm interested that your group has not talked about the one issue that the Supreme Court, when they've made those comments about an inefficient structure, that's the example they've used in every single opinion. So just, just a question. Can I react to David H.
3: before Kent reacts to David T.? <laughs>
0: yes.
3: <laughs> so, um, t- well, we'll, be, we'll put on evidence. There's a, there's a lot of data out there. There are a number of studies, um, and there are a number of ways of looking at educational data, unfortunately, that, that enable some different conclusions. We do believe charter schools are providing an excellent education. We'll put on evidence that that demonstrates that. However, I do agree with with you, David. There are clearly some charter schools that are not meeting the needs of students. And frankly, one of the beauties of charter schools is that in those instances, the state, through legislation and also through the contract that the charter enters into with the State Board of Education, provides authority to shut those schools down. And the Texas Charter Schools Association absolutely absolutely supports closing charters that aren't meeting the needs of students. We've come out publicly on a number of times supporting commissioners' decision to close down um, poorly performing charters. But for you to say that charters is a distraction when you're focused on equity I find a little bit disturbing because, to me, there's nothing more inequitable than zero.
0: And uh, Kent, would you?
4: Oh, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me first of all point out I'm the only one on this stage that is representing that is not representing some portion of the educational establishment we have we're not using any taxpayer funds in our lawsuit there's no school districts that are funding our litigation we're representing kids david henohos talked about you know how can we be making a case what we're trying to do is for kids we represent parents and children in this lawsuit that are trapped in failing schools parents with students in north forest Independent school district that's been a failing school district for years, and those parents have no choice. That is inequity. That is true inequity, David. You can talk about your school district not getting as much money as some other school district not getting much money, but if you want to really get down to the heart of equity, talk about a kid that's trapped In a school district that's not doing the job, and that parent has no choice and no alternative to get that kid out of that district. That's the position we're taking. We're different from the rest. Like I said, we're not representing any interest, any educational interest. We're representing kids and what's best for them in the state of Texas. Also, I would point out that the court, again, we're we're really the only party to this lawsuit that is in the lawsuit by invitation from the Supreme Court. If you read the lawsuits, every one of the Supreme Court rulings has hinted more emphatically in each each new ruling that the focus should not just be on equity and adequacy. The focus needs to be on results. The system needs to be productive of results with little waste. And in West Orange, the court was pretty clear that it said perhaps the school system would be more efficient if competition were injected. The preservation of the liberties and the rights of the people require that parents be empowered to make good decisions for their children. And that's what our lawsuit is all about.
0: Just uh, quickly, Kent, do you have any response to David T's point about the boundaries of school districts and the high overhead costs we see in the state?
4: The consolidation issue, as we know, is a difficult political issue. Everyone can have their own opinions on consolidation. You know, I've got an uncle that represents the rural school districts in the state of Texas, and they they go ballistic (laughs) when you talk about consolidation. So we didn't put this in there not only because I didn't want to make my (laughs) uncle (laughs) But because I really think there are diseconomies of scale. If we want to talk about really, truly inefficient school districts, it's not those little rural districts, in my opinion. This is just my opinion, David. It's not. I know the court has inferred that issue. But to me, Houston, North Forest, Dallas, how can any rational human being be smart enough to oversee a school district the size of Dallas ISD or Houston ISD, they are monstrous. And, you know, all, although Houston, I think, is doing some very innovative things and doing a great job, and I know you represent them, Houston. We do. I know, you, David, that you represent Houston. Yep. I think they're really doing a phenomenal job considering the logistics <clears throat> of dealing with a district with that size. But in my opinion, the system would probably be more efficient if we broke up those monstrous districts. To me, there's more inefficiency there than at the little side. But we do allocate a lot of money to these small small school districts, and there's some consolidation that needs to occur within small districts as well. But to me, that issue of consolidation or deconsolidation is the red herring. What we really need to do is make the system more competitive, allow parents to choose and then they can get out or in of those districts that are doing a good job.
0: Okay, great. I'm sorry you rushed us along, but we are about to start audience questions, so if you have questions, um, you can finalize your wording while I ask one or two more. Uh, David, just to clarify, um, so on the equity issue, would you see equity as an issue of equity of funding or equity of outcomes? How would we best know an equity has been achieved?
2: Well, they're both linked. You can easily tell equity by looking at dollars. So this district right here, which by the way, North Forest, guess where it is on the equity level? It's at the very bottom, where school districts just across town on the other side of Houston end up generating over $1,000 more per student with tax rates substantially less or the same rate as North Forest. But you can uh, look at how there's a link between dollars and outcomes. You look at the wealthiest school districts in the state of Texas and you look at their outcomes, you compare the top 100 versus the bottom 100, you see incredible gaps. And why? Because $1000 per student, what does that mean for a classroom? A classroom of 20, average class size of 20, $20,000 more that teacher has to make has to work with. So whether or not it's curriculum materials, whether or not it's before and after school tutoring, whether or not it's uh, iPads in the classroom, whether or not it's a $10,000 raise that that district can spend on those teachers so they can recruit and retain the best teachers, that's how those two are linked. So you can look at uh, outcomes to see what is being generated at the end of the day, but What we're looking at are, you know, the opportunities that might present themselves to generate better outcomes. And that's why you begin looking at the dollar side of it.
0: Okay. I think David, do you have a response?
2: Just a quick observation on your question, Erica.
1: Remember that Article 7, Section 1 doesn't use the word equity. It doesn't use the word adequacy. Our Supreme Court's thought a lot about this. The court has written a lot about this over many years. Equity... And adequacy are aspects of efficiency. Just like being non wasteful is an aspect of efficiency, equity is an aspect of efficiency, adequacy is an aspect of efficiency. And sort of the way our court has analyzed it is that adequacy focuses more on results. Adequacy really ultimately is a question of how the kids are doing. Are our kids succeeding? Are our kids, do our kids have a meaningful opportunity to meet the standards the state has set? That's the ultimate question about adequacy. Equity is about inputs. Equity is about, at similar tax efforts, if there's some reasonable um, similarity of resources. Not perfect, our court has clearly said that's not the standard. Uh, but you do look at the inputs for the equity argument you tend to look more at the at the results for the adequacy argument. But they're just different aspects of efficiency, just like Kent's concern about not being wasteful is an aspect of efficiency.
0: Okay, great. And I see a line queuing up, so why don't we start with audience questions. Ma'am, would you like to? Thank you. Is this on? Yeah.
5: Okay. Um, when you talk about failing school districts, i just like to know what criteria you're using to...
4: Can you speak up? When you're talking
5: about failing school districts, I just wanted to know what criteria you're using to, to decide whether a school district is failing and whether that criteria you think is a reasonable one.
0: Okay. Uh, so the question is, uh, in talking about failing school districts, what are the criteria that determine a failing school district and is that a fair, a fair standard? Kent, is that? In, in
4: my opinion, a, a failing school district is one where the parents are not pleased with the results of that school.
0: That doesn't seem sort of arbitrary to you?
4: That, that, that is arbitrary, but, but I, I believe in free markets and consumer choice, so that, that's my opinion. We do have standards, we have legal standards for, school di- for failing school districts in the state of Texas and to meet that criteria, but the problem with that kind of hierarchical decision making is that those failing school districts stay around for years and decades? They're 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 rated as failing, but kids are still trapped in those school districts. So yes, an arbitrary decision would be better than the current system, where the kids continue to be trapped in a failing district.
0: Okay. Um, well, let's keep moving along.
6: Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Deneen Matri. I'm with TAMSA. I have two questions. I have two questions, if you could indulge me, they're somewhat unrelated, but following up with this first one. Um, with respect to charters, are charter schools subject to the identical testing and accountability standards as publicly funded schools are? And then my other question relates both to what Mr. Grusendorf and Mr. Hosa asked. Uh, I understand on the lawsuits that you're attempting to reallocate some funding, but I'm wondering if any of the lawsuits are also seeking to suspend the STAR EOC systems in place, since, as we heard from Commissioner Scott this morning, they've cut all the SS the student success initiatives and the um, remediation funding and everything. I didn't know if that was a part of the lawsuits.
0: Do we want to start with the charter schools question?
3: Um, yeah, David? to answer the, the first question, yes. The answer is yes. The simple answer is yes. Um, charter schools are subject to the same, um, charter school students take the same test, required to take all of the same assessments, uh, subject to all of the same um, accountability standards and requirements, under Chapter 39 as traditional school districts, and also subject to all of the same fiscal management, financial operational kinds of accountability as traditional school districts. They do have some, we do have some flexibility. Some of the flexibilities that, uh, that Kent's trying to argue all school districts should have, charter schools enjoy, but subject to all of the same accountability.
0: And uh, David T.,
1: um, on the second question, our group is definitely not seeking to suspend Uh, any of our testing and accountability system. I view that as a policy debate to be had in the legislature, not necessarily, at least at at first glance, a a legal issue at this point. And our group strongly supports high standards, and I want to be clear about that. Texas embarked as a state, and we need to keep sight of this. We bought into, we were one of the early adopters in Texas of standards-based accountability clear standards, reasonable resources tied to our standards and expectations, uh, state regulation of outcomes and more flexibility at the local level for processes, we've sort of gotten away from that, and then accountability for results at the end. I I still think that is the right construct, uh, and I'm proud that Texas has been on that path for many years. There are clearly policy adjustments we need to make, and I think in our assessment accountability system um, uh, there are always going to be modifications that need to be made. Uh, I suspect we'll have that debate in the coming legislative session um, but but as a as a construct for how we approach it a reform uh, that that 's a path we 've been on as a state that I hope we don't uh, don 't completely um, separate ourselves from but that is not what we're seeking in the lawsuit we support high standards we simply want a funding system that's actually connected to the standards and expectations we're setting
2: Yeah, and let, let me just add there's a difference between high standards and high-stakes testing you can have high standards without having high-stakes testing that said maldef tried to uh, not have the toss back in the 1990s. Legally, it's a very difficult issue. Politically, any of you out there who want to try and get rid of high-stakes testing, I know Kent's group won't, because they're supported. He says that they're not supported by the uh, They don't represent any of the establishment. But one of the parties in their lawsuit is the Texas Association of Business. So they might not be the establishment, but they certainly as heck control the establishment. And they're not going to be for that because the more high-stakes testing we have, we went from four to 15 high-stakes testing. Four relatively easy tax tests in the 11th grade to 15 end-of-course exams that you have to have minimum scores, you have to have a minimum cumulative score, you also have to... uh, meet certain standards in order to graduate with a recommended high school program. If you don't graduate with a recommended high school program, you can't qualify for the top 10%. You have to have remediation. You have to retake these tests in order to get it. And who wins at the end of the day? Pearson. Pearson wins.
3: (laughs) From the charter school's perspective, we clearly... Charter schools embrace accountability. Charter schools, the, the, expect the state to, to outline outcomes that are expected. We expect to have metrics to demonstrate whether we've met those outcomes or not. We embrace accountability. We also embrace competition. We're four more charter schools. We're four more schools coming in, even though there's going to be, uh, that it, we're, we think parental choice is a key part of improvement in the public school system. So we embrace accountability and competition.
0: Okay, great. Um, we could probably stay on this, but let's go on to the next question.
7: Uh, again, this is um, related to um, equity and, and accountability. And, uh, so about two or three years ago, the state published TPMs, the Texas Projected Measure. Uh, it's a value-added um, instrument, to, to, uh, they, which they published together with the tax <laughs> scores and results, and, they, and then they immediately pulled that practice. Um, I think programs like REACH, which I believe is being used in Houston ISD and is being used here in Austin, um, are revisiting that approach. And just for the audience who's not familiar, basically it's not so much did the, did the student pass the test, but did the student make um, un- greater, than greater than expected gains on, the, on their tests. And um, it's, it's a way to measure student, teacher, district, and uh, excuse me school and district success so david inhosa um i just wonder what your opinion is on the utility of the value-added measures in your attempt and the panel entire attempt to address equity and and meet high standards
2: sure the you know and and don't get me wrong we all got to start at equity right whatever happens after that how we're going to judge the efficiencies of school districts and their spending have transparency for the public. That's something that we need to do, but to try and hold all students in all districts to the same standards, but yet fund them differently for no valid educational reason, just arbitrary reasons and who has the strongest voice in in the capital. Getting to the point on on value added and student growth models, it all depends on what you're doing with the student growth. Is it individual student growth? So how are students growing? individually from one year to the next that's fantastic of course you know how you gauge accountability and penalize either students and or districts you know that's the real problem but we showed in in Colorado where we won a school adequacy case last year on behalf of low income and english language learner students that districts were meeting this growth model and this accountability system but students were failing all across And they were essentially, and I hate to say this analogy, kind of makes sense, but they're comparing bad apples to bad apples. So your lowest performing students are being compared to lowest performing students, and then they're seeing, well, who's growing a little bit more? Well, at the end of the day, all these students are still way down here. Their performance is way down here, while all the other greatest performing, the highest performing students in Colorado are up here. That's why you still, even though you have a value-added growth model there in the state of Colorado, they have one of the highest achievement gaps across the country, across the country. New Jersey kicks their butt when it comes to achievement gaps, and that's downright shameful. So, you know, it's all what's in the eye of the beholder at the end of the day with uh, value-added measures
4: school districts or schools in general are in the business of value-added i mean that's what it's about whether the kid starts down here or up here what you want to do is add value to the system or add value from that student's perspective one of the issues in our lawsuit is uh, criticizing the state's financial accountability system it's really good that we have a financial accountability accountability system for our schools in the state of texas But the problem is there's no correlation in that system between spending and results. We're spending $60 billion a year, folks. No business enterprise in this state or in this country would spend $60 billion a year without having a productivity component and being able to analyze specifically if we spend X dollars here, what results do we get here? That is absent, totally absent. That's one of the uh, items that we will be challenging in our lawsuit is financial accountability system fails to have that productivity components so that we can really evaluate if you're going to spend money on this component of education, if you're going to spend money on class size reduction here or on this program over here or this program over here, what's the cost-benefit analysis? That's totally absent in our system in Texas.
0: Okay, We. I just want to make a side note. We have five minutes left, so I'm going to ask everyone, questioners and panelists, to be very efficient from now on so we can get through the questions. Uh, David, did you want to add to that?
1: Uh, state law still requires a uh, measurement of progress or growth. Uh, the TPM sort of blew up, and, um, and and so we backed away from it. We don't have a a growth or, or um, progress measure right now, but we need one. Um, what i would differentiate uh, tpm was sort of a predictive growth model Uh, and what we really need what i prefer are growth to standard models where you you frankly figure out where a kid needs to get how far away he or she is from that ultimate goal because kids do start at different places they come to us uh, in different places uh, but the goal of the system, as Kent said, is to make progress with kids, and ultimately it's to make progress towards the standard uh, that we want our kids to have, which is college and workforce readiness by the time they leave high school. Okay. Uh,
5: I appreciate the fact that money inequity is such a concerning topic and that all these lawsuits are happening, but um, I, I am a Title I high school teacher here in Bastrop, and we're in a Brand new schools, Cedar Creek High School, three years old, plenty of money, plenty of laptops, um, awesome program. We're project-based learning, highly qualified teachers. When you compare us to a school like, say, in Lake Travis District, um, our scores are the failures that you're talking about. Uh, Our dropout rates are extremely high, and that's tied to the literacy rate, which is tied to socioeconomic status and what's happening at home. So I don't see where more money would particularly help my title school achieve higher literacy rates if these community issues aren't being handled. And if this high-stakes testing continues to be tied to uh, teacher job security, as the Obama administration is saying, what is to stop me and other highly qualified teachers from leaving a Title I school to go teach? L.A. Travis, well, we know those students are uh, supported from the very beginning. They have stable homes and stable incomes. So my question is, how is more money going to help my school and my kids do better?
4: I I could probably spend a lot of time on that, but we don't have it. I, uh, I think that's an excellent question. Because how are we allocating resources? In the top-down model that we have today, in this highly structured system where we pay vir- virtually everybody the same amount of money, it's a problem. In a more competitive environment, teachers, good teachers would be paid more to teach in those schools where there might be a shortage or where there might be a real need. So again, coming back to the absence of market forces in our system, I think, drive some of the inefficiencies and some of the problems, and again, back to the point, no human being is smart enough to try to make formula adjustments to adjust for what the market would do.
2: One one of the issues that that you're confronted with is that you're dealing with students who are in high school already. You know, one of our issues in our case is about the lack of funding for uh, high-quality pre-K programs. And that's where it all begins, especially for your most challenging student population. There's also a number of successful uh, parental involvement programs that also cost money for someone to coordinate and to you know host those parents and to get them involved and educated. You know, there's ESL programs for parents that have been cut as a result of the program. So how are these students going to be able to? Uh, how are these parents going to be able to uh, help their students? But You know, I I hear what you're saying. You know, at the high school level, but there's also a lot of intervention programs that cost substantial monies, but their cost benefit is still great for Texas at the end of the day because of the cost of a high school graduate versus a dropout. And so, but Texas doesn't want to look at the investment through that lens, and that's why we we end up with the problem that we have. Just real quickly, I I can't
3: speak to Clear Creek High School. But I can tell you how more money is going to help some of these charter schools. Charter schools, because they don't get facilities funding, too many of them don't have science labs. Too many of them don't have gymnasiums. They don't have adequate classroom space um, per student. And so provide, how can you teach science effectively without a fully um, resourced science lab? It's very, very difficult. And so providing some facilities funding to, to meet those needs, I absolutely believe will help increase educational outcomes
2: in charter schools. Okay, great. uh, My question is for uh, Mr. Thompson and Mr. Hinojosa. Um, So we've talked a lot about your job, y'all's jobs, is to articulate what the problem with the system is, but I kind of want to talk a little bit about what a solution could be. Um, One idea that's been kicked around that's kind of a long shot um, is a statewide property tax, and I was wondering... um, if y'all expect that we can have an an equitable system without some sort of statewide uh, property tax system?
1: Um, You you know, the statewide property tax issue comes up about every 10 years. And it's a very interesting debate uh, from an intellectual standpoint. Uh, It's not going to happen. We have a constitutional prohibition on a state property tax that would require two-thirds of the legislature and then a vote of the public to create a statewide property tax. I don't see that happening. You do have issues when you go that route with uniform assessment and some other issues you have to work through. Uh, I think what we have to do uh, in our state system is compensate for the differences in value between uh, different jurisdictions that's that's currently what our system tries to do. It could probably do it better. Um, I, I think the debate I've I've heard it three times now in the last 30 years. Again, it's about a once a decade argument. Uh, the discussion about a state property tax is interesting. Uh, I don't. Uh, it, it simplifies the system. It doesn't solve all the issues with regard to adequacy, equity, efficiency.
0: Maybe, can I add on that question, what is it realistic to think the state can do at this point? Because as of last year, the state's not even meeting its current funding formula
1: obligations.
0: And can we get to where we need to be without some new revenue stream, if not the one the questioner suggests?
1: You know, schools are not immune from the economic cycle any more than any of us as individuals or other businesses are. So, I mean, that's part of life. Uh, but at the same time, I think we have to go back and remember. You know, we said something in 1876 about education. We didn't say about any other public service. We didn't say it about highways. We didn't say it about all sorts of things that we all appreciate and that make our lives better. Unique language and, and Kent, what the what our constitution said is that the preservation of the liberties and rights of the people is connected to an educated citizenry. That Jeffersonian notion is why in 1876, we decided to have a system of public free schools. We have to fund to our standards, not simply fund on a, well, what's available. And and so, you know, looking at the revenue side of the equation, has to be part of the mix. And, and I want to be real clear, money doesn't solve every problem. We can spend a lot of money and spend it poorly and not get much to show for it. We need dollars well spent, we need dollars productively spent, but we need a funding system that is actually connected and driven by the standards that we expect our schools, our communities, our kids to achieve. And we've got to find the money for that.
0: Let me go to the last questioner, and then we'll ask you guys for any final thoughts before we go. If you guys need to leave now, you can just sneak out quietly.
6: Okay, I'll just try and be brief. Um, The comparison was drawn earlier between Edgewood and Alamo Heights ISDs as uh, districts with different amounts of funding, and that was affecting their performance. And the comptroller's office published a study, I think just yesterday, and they ranked Edgewood ISD with two out of five stars for fiscal efficiency, and Alamo Heights was ranked four out of five. And I'm aware there are some potential flaws, but I was wondering if maybe it gives rise to the question, should we be ensuring that school districts are spending state funding efficiently, putting it in the classroom and making good use of it before we start talking about what the state should be doing?
2: Yeah, and I, I think that's very fair. I will say that the Comptroller Report is very skewed and very flawed. You know, that, that's just, you know, we've already gotten evidence about that, you know, in the case. But you know, exactly what does this two stars mean? I haven't, you know, looked at the latest report just yet, but two stars versus four stars. You know, you have Alamo Heights that, you know, the children that they're educating there are way different than the kids on the, on the Edgewood side of town. You know, in Edgewood, they're struggling immensely with what the, the funds, the, the very funds that they have. So to try and hold uh, Edgewood to the same financial accountability system or, you know, this audit that the state did is incredibly unfair because you're dealing with different student populations. Edgewood's over 90% economically disadvantaged, like 98% Latino. Alamo Heights doesn't come close to those numbers, yet they still have a, uh, a, a substantial gap uh, they still have a $1,000 more per student than the Edgewoods did. And this doesn't even include the, the access to facilities, uh, you know, funding. So I think, you know, you have to be very careful. You almost have to take those type of analysis with a grain of salt because I can compare, you know, what I'm able to offer, you know, my students or, or my uh, kids, you know, on my little nonprofit lawyer budget that I have, you know, versus what some other lawyer, I won't name anybody up here, you know, on the table, but about what they might do. And you might say, "Well, you know, you weren't, in, you weren't very efficient because you all went out to a restaurant and spent 70 dollars on your dinner. Why did you spend 70 dollars on a dinner where well, you don't have that much money? Why didn't you, you know, buy some books instead for your kids and you know, eat at subway or something like that? I, you know like I said you know you have to look at you know the books at the end of the day of course you do but there's no inefficient spending in Edgewood that's been revealed uh, in this case
0: Okay we actually I think need to cut it off because we are about 5 7 minutes over time <laughs> um, we'll be up here for a minute or two if you guys have any last thoughts but otherwise thanks so much for coming and thank you, you. Thank 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 you. thanks, thanks.